British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he's stepping down. I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. Johnson's own party had heaped on the pressure. What cost him the top job coming up? It's Thursday, July 7th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Filipino government has ordered the online news site Rappler to shut down, but the publication's founder, Nobel Prize-winning journalist Maria Ressa, says she has plans to keep it running. Basketball star Brittany Griner has pleaded guilty to drug crimes in Russia and remains in Russian jail. Calls for Washington to get her released have grown more vociferous. The ability not to have freedom, to have that taken away from her in another country, I think that's just, is unfathomable. And to remember actor James Kahn, it's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Former Theranos executive Ramesh Sani Balwani is convicted of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit fraud when he was an executive at the now defunct healthcare startup. He was accused of lying about the financial health of the company and helping Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes mislead investors about the efficacy of the company's blood testing technology. Holmes was convicted of fraud charges in January. She is awaiting sentencing. On the heels of dozens of resignations from his own government, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson now says he's resigned, but not by choice. Villa Marx has more. Standing outside 10 Downing Street before hundreds of journalists, Johnson acknowledged it would be, quote, painful not to see his ideas and projects come to fruition as he announced his resignation as Conservative leader. With staff and family members cheering from nearby, he insisted his efforts in recent days to persuade parliamentary colleagues he should remain in place had not been selfish, but rather in the interests of national stability. But he said the, quote, herd instinct in British politics made that impossible after a large-scale rebellion. Several Conservative legislators have already announced their desire to replace Johnson, with the timeline for a leadership contest likely to be confirmed next week. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks in London. American basketball star Brittany Griner has pleaded guilty to drug charges at her trial in Russia. It's unclear if President Biden's recent letter to her influenced that decision. NPR's Charles Maines was in the Moscow courtroom when Griner admitted to bringing cannabis oil into Russia, where she was arrested at an airport in February. Griner really basically sat through most of this, listening, but with not a lot to say. Uh, and then once the prosecution formally wrapped for the day, Griner stood up from inside that cage and said she wanted to make a statement. She was pleading guilty, uh, but told the judge she had not intended to break Russian law. And as she put it, I, I packed my bag in a hurry. In other words, she forgot the vape cartridges were there. NPR's Charles Maines reporting. Actor James Caan has died. The actor was known worldwide for his portrayal of hot-headed mobster Sonny Corleone in The Godfather, but his six-decade career had many turns. Khan was 82 years old. NPR's Anastasia Siolkas has this remembrance. James Khan was unforgettable as Sonny Corleone. What do you think? This is the army where you shoot him a mile away? You gotta get him close like this, and bing you blow their brains all over your nice cyber league suit. But his range was huge. He played a college professor mired in debt in 1974 as The Gambler, opposite Barbara Streisand in the 1975 musical Funny Lady, and a novelist held hostage by a deranged fan in 1990's Misery. He gained new generations of fans through movies like 2003's Elf. Offstage, he battled demons for decades, including drug addiction, and had a tumultuous personal life that included four divorces. Anastasia Tsoukas, NPR News, New York. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow is at 346 points. It's NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts lawmakers want to provide taxpayers with rebate checks to help people deal with rising inflation. Today, top Democrats in the House announced they've agreed on a plan to send $250 checks to individual taxpayers and $500 checks to couples who file the taxes jointly. Legislators now need to draft the legislation and vote on it by the end of the session in July. The money would come from the state's budget surplus. Lawmakers say they're still considering other tax relief proposals, but legislatures previously rejected the idea of a gas tax holiday. Environmental advocates in Massachusetts are pushing for lawmakers to ban food packaging made with so-called forever chemicals. This week, the governor of Rhode Island signed a bill preventing packaging with PFAS from being manufactured, sold, or distributed in the state. The chemicals have been found in drinking water in several Massachusetts communities. They do not break down and have been linked to cancers, liver disease, and other health problems. Legislative Director for Massburg, Deidre Cummings, says Massachusetts should be leading on this issue. We're using food packaging for just a few minutes. But the effect and the damage of that food packaging lasts in our environment now for for many, many years, and it's doing significant hazard. A similar bill is stalled in the Massachusetts legislature. Manufacturers of the chemicals have opposed the proposal. A former Massachusetts corrections officer has pleaded not guilty to killing an 11-year-old girl in Lawrence in 1988. Marvin McClendon was arraigned today in Salem on a murder charge for the death of Melissa Trembley police arrested the 75-year-old this spring in Alabama. That's where he was living. Investigators say advances in DNA technology led them to McClendon. He's being held without bail as he awaits trial. And most of the state remains in a moderate drought, according to figures released today by the U.S. Drought Monitor, which show the region needs more rain. Conditions are most severe in the Boston area, Central Mass, and a large portion of Western Mass. Moderate drought conditions also extend into eastern New Hampshire and southeast Maine. Things are a bit better on the South Shore, South Coast, Cape and the Islands, and the Berkshires, but they are listed as abnormally dry. 77 degrees now. Look for some sunshine, lots of clouds collecting, especially as the evening goes on. Clouds pretty much line the sky tonight, lows about 65. Tomorrow could rise to the low 80s with partial sunshine. 77 degrees in Boston. It's 406. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. The Boris Johnson era is coming to a close. Under tremendous pressure, Johnson was forced to agree to step down as leader of Britain's Conservative Party this morning, making way for a new prime minister. For more, we turn to NPR's Frank Langfitt in London. Hey, Frank. Hey, Juana. Frank, this was another huge day in British politics. What did Johnson say today about why he was resigning? Well, you know, as interesting, Juana, he didn't want to go, and he said so. He presented himself as kind of a victim of his own party. He said he wanted to stay on to serve the British public, but his party wouldn't let him. And and this is how he put it. And in the last few days, I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when we're actually only a handful of points behind in the polls. I regret uh, not to have been successful in those arguments. So, Frank, did you hear him take any responsibility at all for his own downfall? No, he did not. And he said he's not leaving. 
until the party chooses a new leader, who of course will become the UK's new prime minister. Okay, and what do people there think of that, this idea that Johnson wants to stay on for a while? And also, how would that even work? Yeah, so they don't like it. I mean, his party was doing everything to get him out this week. Um, Today, Number 10 Downing Street says that Johnson will serve as a caretaker prime minister, basically. And he won't implement any new policies, no major financial decisions now. Of course, Juana, there's a lot of skepticism because of Johnson's history of breaking rules and norms. And John Major, he's former conservative prime minister here, he calls this whole idea unwise, which is, you know, British un- understatement for like a terrible way mm. to do something. And Major, he wrote to party leaders today saying, here's the quote, some will argue his new cabinet will restrain him. I merely note that his previous cabinet did not or could not do so. Okay, Frank, you have covered Johnson for years now. So I have to ask you, what do you think it was that ultimately brought him down? You know, I know this is going to sound really quaint these days, but I think this is true. It was failure to tell the truth. And this has been a hallmark of Johnson's career. You go back when he worked for the Times of London as a journalist, he was fired for making up quotes. He was fired from a job later when he was in the Conservative Party uh, for lying about an affair. But I think what may have happened is, you know, when you become prime minister, uh, there's a lot more scrutiny and the stakes are a lot higher. Um, You know, he didn't tell the truth about parties that his staff were throwing during the pandemic that violated the government's own COVID rules. And that really upset people here who most of whom had followed the rules in some cases didn't say goodbye to loved ones who were dying of COVID. The final scandal, the one that really toppled him today, he appointed a man who was accused of sexual harassment to a position of power in the party, but he denied that he'd known about the claim. That turned out not to be true. Now, today... Juan, I went down this morning to Number 10 Downing Street, and I ran into a guy named David Summers. And John, he's a Johnson supporter. He's a retired cattle farmer from the southwest of England. And he told me that he really liked some of Johnson's policies. But the lies, as David Summers put it, changed his mind. He did really well on COVID, bringing in vaccines. We were ahead of the world on that one. He's back Ukraine to the hilt. But the mistakes are it's just one or two lies he told he should have been honest about. And now they've come out of the cupboard and bit on the backside. All right. So I assume there's a lot of speculation already. Who will run to replace Johnson? And what could that contest look like? Yeah, everybody's watching this really closely. I was talking to Nicholas Allen today. He teaches politics at Royal Holloway, University of London. And this is what he thinks is going to happen. There are a lot of very ambitious politicians who now fancy their chances at becoming prime minister. So it's probably more likely than not that there will be a very messy and distracting leadership contest that will last a couple of months. And we'll be watching a number of people, the current defense minister who was out in front of arming Ukraine, the foreign secretary. Then there's Sajid Javid, former health secretary, Rishi Sunak, former UK secretary, and Nadim Zahawi, who's now the current secretary of the Treasury, basically. And one thing is Javid and Sunak, they're children of immigrants from South Asia. Zahawi is born in Iraq. They would, any of those, would bring a very different perspective to Number 10 Downing Street. NPR's Frank Langfitt in London. Thank you. Great to talk, Juana. Between mass shootings and much more common day-to-day gun violence, there were more than 45,000 firearm-related deaths in the U.S. in 2020. Or, to put it another way, about 124 each day. 
That comes from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Grady Memorial Hospital in downtown Atlanta regularly treats the people who make up that data. The hospital has a certified level one trauma center, meaning it's equipped to deal with the most serious injuries, including many gunshot injuries. Dr. Elizabeth Benjamin is the trauma medical director for Grady, and she joins us now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. So I I know that Grady is one of the busiest trauma centers in the country. Can you just tell us, what does that look like on a daily basis for you? Yeah, we we see a lot of trauma at Grady. We are definitely one of the busier trauma centers in the nation. We have about a quarter of our patients that come in from penetrating trauma. So that means gunshot wounds, stab wounds, these kinds of violent crimes. And at Grady, we have a really high proportion of those are from gunshot wounds. And the number of gunshot wound victims has increased significantly over the last decade, and it has really become a nightly occurrence that we have often multiple gunshot victims on a nightly basis here at the trauma center. What is the cause of most of the firearm-related injuries that you see? Like, is it intentional violence? Is it accidents? What's the biggest proportion? It's typically intentional. Um, We do have a surprising number of unintentional or things that get coded as unintentional, but the vast, vast majority is violent crime intentional. Yeah. You know, I was thinking the other day when we talk about the cost of gun violence, we tend to focus on deaths, right? Like after a mass shooting, there's almost a sigh of relief for the people who are quote unquote only injured by the gunfire. But Let's be very clear here. Gun injuries are often life-changing. Can you talk about that piece of it? Like, what's the range of what you see among the people who survive? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, and there's a huge range. I mean, I agree with you. So many people talk about, oh, somebody was lucky. They only had this injury. I mean, it's they were still shot. I mean, there's nothing lucky about that. The way that the body reacts and the way that the mind reacts is obviously different, but you know, there's two real components to it. There's the psychological component. So some people might not suffer physical, you know, long-term physical harm, but they'll still suffer quite a bit of psychological harm from the incident. And and then from a bodily harm, you know, for injuries sustained, it's a huge effect. I mean, we have have patients that come in that are paralyzed, you know, paraplegic, quadriplegic, their entire life changes in an instant, you know, they'll lose a limb, they'll have massive changes, you know, to their liver function, their uh, internal organs will do operations, and they'll be dealing with the repercussions of those injuries for possibly the rest of their life. And, you know, and it doesn't just change their life, it changes the life of their family and their friends, their livelihood. It's, the impact is really difficult to quantify, almost impossible. Yeah. Well, from your point of view, as someone who is inside the healthcare system, how would you describe the way guns are affecting this country's public health as a whole? Oh, I mean, it's a public health crisis. There's just too many guns. I mean, there's too many people that are getting shot and injured and It is a true public health crisis. I mean, the numbers of people that we're seeing directly and indirectly secondarily affected by gun violence is, I mean, it's one of the biggest public health problems that we're facing right now. I have to ask, do you ever see a time when gun violence will not be such a massive problem in the U.S.? What do you think? (laughs) Well, I have to say yes. I mean, that's why we do this, right? I don't do this job to keep treating victims of gun violence. You know, a huge part of our job that we do is support violence prevention. A lot of hospitals are, are 
really working to improve this and, and broaden the reach. We have a lot of programs within the city of Atlanta, a lot of programs that are funded by Grady and the, and the city and overall, and a lot of people working towards that. So I have to believe that there's a chance to, to really decrease this burden um, and this, this healthcare crisis. That is Dr. Elizabeth Benjamin. She's Grady Memorial Hospital's trauma medical director in Atlanta. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's small, it's green, it's a crustacean, and now it's in whiskey. People are going to hear crab whiskey, and I venture to say three quarters of them are going to go, blah, no, absolutely not. But then when you actually, if you can get them to taste it, uh, they totally changed their tune for the most part. Will Robinson is a product developer at Tamworth Distilling. He decided one way to tackle the invasive species, green crabs, was to try to bottle them. First, he distills a crab stock in a vacuum still. It looks like a crazy piece of laboratory equipment. It's taller. I'm six foot four, and it's taller than I am. The pot, so to speak, that the liquid goes in is a bulbous-shaped um, glass piece that holds about 20 liters, has a volume of about 20 liters of liquid. Then he adds spices like paprika, dill, and cinnamon, and everything is mixed with a bourbon base. It takes about a pound of crabs to make each bottle of whiskey, but it's going to take a lot more to get the green crab population under control. Because there's so many of them. There's so many of them. They are probably one of the most uh, successful invasive species that we have in North America, at least in the marine world. Dr. Gabriella Brott, she's a fisheries specialist at the University of New Hampshire. They can eat about 40, 40 mussels a day, just one crab. And so you multiply that by a bazillion and you have no more clams, right? So even though crab whiskey alone can't fix the problem, Brott says she hopes it helps by raising awareness. And speaking of raising awareness, Juana, I understand that you get to have a taste of some of this green crab whiskey right there in the studio in D.C.? That is right. We're going to try it out. I'm going to smell it first. Okay, so there's a lot of spices going on here. I definitely smell the paprika they talked about. So does it actually taste like crab in any way? <laughs> no, I, I do not taste any crab. But there is a nice little heat, maybe like a, a cousin twice removed from fireball. <laughs> We'll mail you some. <laughs> You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a Filipino news organization that's been critical of the nation's war on drugs is now facing a government order that it shut down. We'll hear from the journalist who's trying to hold back the government coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Q Chara Cafe in Melrose. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. LaQchara.com. On Wall Street today, stocks gained ground. The Dow was up one and a tenth percent, 347 points, to close at 31,385. S&P rose for a fourth day to match the year's longest winning streak. The index picked up one and a half percent to close at 39.03, and the Nasdaq pulled in more than two and a quarter percent to finish the day at 11,621. Cape Cod Hospital plans to expand. It's asking the state's Department of Public Health to approve construction of a four-story building on the hospital campus in Hyannis. That would allow the hospital to expand its medical oncology department and relocate other departments. Officials with Cape Cod Healthcare say a new building is the best option and a renovation of its existing building is not feasible. It's 419. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Farmers Markets. From fish markets and brew pubs to farmers markets and local restaurants, there are countless ways to eat like a local when you're traveling around Massachusetts. Learn more at eatlikealocalinma.org. Funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism. Clouds on the increase tonight, falling to the mid-60s. Beautiful July weather continues tomorrow with partly sunny skies, inching up to about 83. Saturday, mostly sunny, a bit cooler, highs about 77. Sunday should be sunny, temperatures nudging 80. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rock Auto, an online auto parts store shipping parts directly to customers worldwide. Everything from complex sensors to new carpet. More at rockauto.com. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses. A platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Last week in the Philippines, the government again ordered the shutdown of the online news outlet Rappler. This order came just days before former President Rodrigo Duterte left office. His government argued that Rappler had violated foreign ownership rules. Duterte had long sought to shut down Rappler. The publication was critical of the former president's violent war on drugs. Rappler's founder, Nobel Prize-winning journalist Maria Ressa, plans to battle that shutdown order in court. Maria Ressa joins us now from Manila. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me, Juana. Just to start, right now, is Rappler currently up and running? Absolutely. It's, you know, our only defense as a journalist is to actually shine the light. So when you get like what is equivalent of a shutdown order, do you stay quiet about it and wait? Or do you tell people about it? You tell your community about it. We chose to tell our community and we are working business as usual. We covered the inauguration of President Marcos and uh, we continue to do our jobs. This shutdown order came just as Rodrigo Duterte was set to leave office. So as you understand it, what are the implications of this order for y'all to shut down? Um, It ostensibly is the end of a long court process that began um, in 2016. We received the SEC, which is a minor regulatory agency here, to revoke our license to operate in January of 2018. Um, This is the tail end of that, and we should have the ability to challenge it at the Court of Appeals, to appeal this, right? But you have to keep in mind two things. The SEC's kill order, when they tried to revoke our license to operate, is the first of its kind in history of the Philippines. It is the first time that this regulatory agency is trying to shut down a news group, meaning to go right up against freedom of the press, which is in the Bill of Rights. Our constitution is patterned after the United States. You've said that this kill order is the first of its kind in the history of the country. Why do you believe that the government in the Philippines, that Duterte has targeted you, has targeted Rappler? We weren't the only ones. I mean, the first target of President Duterte was the largest newspaper. This was in his first State of the Nation address because the newspaper published a photo that uh, showed the 
impunity in the war on drugs. The second target was the largest broadcaster, ABS-CBN, a news group I used to lead. Um, that has resulted in the end, uh, you know, the franchise of ABS-CBN was essentially taken away uh, in 2020. And we were the third target in his third State of the Nation address. I think we've survived because we have pushed back aggressively. We haven't stayed quiet. We have done our jobs and continue to do our jobs, uh, pretending, you know, there is a Damocles sword hanging over our heads. But what we do is you know, we use that as motivation to do our jobs better. We'd like to learn a little bit more about Rappler and about the work that you do. About how big is the staff? You're talking about 100, uh, 120 people total. So it's, uh, we're, I would call us a medium-sized news group in terms of reach. Um, Rappler is fourth in reach online behind just the top television station and the, and the top newspaper. And I want to ask you about the people who power that coverage. How is your staff doing in the midst of all of this? You know, it's like we're living life like it's breaking news. We're, we've been very, we've been forced to be very agile because think about it like this, right? We now have a, a, a kill order, right? We've been told we have a, a shutdown order. So even as we're operating and we're, the team is in high spirits because we've prepared for this moment, we know that we could, we have two paths. We could get shut down tomorrow or we could hire more people tomorrow. It's a little bit surreal, this is the kind of world we live in. You cannot voluntarily give up your rights. Maria, who do you think is hurt most in a world in which Rappler could well be forced to shut down, to stop publishing at some point? You know, we're seeing really a global downturn in terms of uh, democratic freedoms and rights. And who would be hurt the most? I, I mean, what we've seen, and, uh, and you've heard me blame technology as really the the spark that lit really dry kindling. Um, technology, social media took lies and spread it faster and further than facts. Um, when you don't know what the facts are, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. If you don't have these three, you don't have a shared reality. You can't solve any problems. And we have seen in the last six years of the Duterte administration, really uh, death by a thousand cuts of our democracy and our institutions. Here's the part that is, I feel is dangerous, not just for the Philippines, but for the world. If we don't have facts, if you don't have integrity of facts, how will you have integrity of elections? The U.S. this year in November will have its midterm elections. If you are insidiously manipulated on social media, how do you know whether you will have integrity of the vote? When these types of illiberal leaders are democratically elected, they then cave the institutions of democracy from within. We are seeing this in many countries around the world, including the United States. Yeah. What would you say to fellow journalists in places like Hungary, Russia, Turkey, Uganda, and elsewhere, where news outlets are facing oppressive tactics and threats of violence simply for doing their jobs, for covering the news. I was actually with many of them just a few weeks ago in, uh, in Bonn. And, you know, Russia, for example, the Russian journalists who were just pushed into exile, 
what they said is that you know, this is what it looks like when you lose. Um, they compared themselves to like the frog in boiling water. They didn't realize that, that it would crumble so fast. The Ukrainian journalists actually gave us the most hope because it was very clear when you're at war, news is survival. And, you know, she talked about how the journalists all worked together. They went into the, they went into the same bomb shelters. People needed to know where they could get gasoline, where they could get water, right? That's a different one. But then the rest of us in Hungary, Brazil, um, Turkey, in the Philippines, in India, we're all in the same boat, having to hold the line. We continue to do our jobs. And yet, the very same platforms that distribute the news have become this weapon of authoritarian leaders that are not just pushing back, pushing back against journalists, trying to hold them to account, but are literally, I mean, we are closer to fascism. And I don't use that word lightly. Maria Ressa, founder and CEO of Rappler, speaking to us from Manila. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And good luck to all of us. NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds on the increase over the next several hours, falling to the mid-60s overnight tonight. And then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies inching up to about 83 degrees. Coming to WBUR City Space Saturday, July 16th, the Crossword Show, a live comedy event hosted by actor, TV writer, and comedian Jack Sherwin. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio even in California or in Michigan or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Wall Street is responding to signs of a resilient U.S. labor market. So far, recession worries don't appear to be weighing on the job market, as NPR's Scott Horsley reports. Despite a number of high-profile layoff announcements at companies like Netflix and Tesla, the overall U.S. job market remains strong. New claims for unemployment benefits rose only slightly last week. Claims have fallen more than 40 percent from this time last year. Job openings in May were down slightly, but there are still a lot more vacant jobs than there are unemployed workers. The Labor Department is set to report on June's employment gains tomorrow. The nation's trade deficit shrank in May to just over $85 billion. Exports and imports both rose during the month, but exports rose faster. 
The trade deficit with China was also down during the month. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The most decorated American gymnast, Simone Biles, was among 17 people awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom today at the White House. It's the president's highest award given to recognize civilians who have made significant contributions to the national interest of the U.S. At 25, Biles becomes the youngest ever to receive the honor after testifying before Congress about how Olympic officials failed to stop the sexual abuse of athletes who suffered under former Dr. Larry Nassar. A trailblazing a role model. When she stands on the podium, she sees, we see what she is. Absolute courage to turn personal pain into greater purpose, to stand up and speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Today, she adds to her medal count of 32. I know you're going to find room. Other recipients included the late Senator John McCain and Megan Rapinoe for her fight for gender pay equity in women's professional soccer. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. New England's electricity grid is in for a major transformation over the next three decades. A new report from the grid's operator, ISO New England, says the region is moving away from fossil fuels. Reporter Mara Hoplamazian has more. The grid operator's report says decarbonization will become a way of life in New England, with heat pumps and electric vehicles increasing regional demand for electricity. At the same time, ISO forecasts that reliance on natural gas will decline, while renewable sources will pick up the slack. Every New England state except New Hampshire has already set aggressive targets for increasing those resources. To meet demand, ISO is forecasting wind power to play a greater role, with battery storage and solar panels accounting for much of the rest. The infrastructure, all the substations, wires, and underwater cables that bring that electricity to homes will also need attention, the report says. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. A one-time supporter of former President Trump will spend three years on probation and pay a $7,000 fine for threatening to kill Massachusetts Congresswoman Anna Presley and three other congresswomen. 67-year-old David George Hannon of Florida sent an email threatening the lawmakers in 2019. He pleaded guilty earlier this year and apologized for his actions. Today, a federal judge sentenced Hannon to probation and to undergo mental health and substance use treatment. The president of LaSalle University in Newton will retire next June. Michael Alexander has led the university for 16 years. He joins nearly a dozen other college presidents who have announced plans to depart. They include leaders of Harvard, MIT, UMass Amherst, and Tufts. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is vowing to increase efforts to address mental health among young people. Today, she visited an East Boston nonprofit that provides children access to programs to create music. She said the city is committed to partnering with similar programs to help kids whose families are struggling with issues such as the pandemic, housing, and transportation. It changes lives when we truly integrate mental health, community building, arts and culture, and every other possible support that we can give to our young people. Wu says the city is dedicated to improving mental health. One example, she says, is that the city created a new position this spring of chief behavioral health officer at the Boston Public Health Commission. In the forecast, more clouds over the next few hours. Overcast overnight tonight, falling to the mid-60s. And then a stretch of beautiful days ahead. Comfortable ones, too. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Highs about 83. Saturday, sunshine returns, as do the light breezes. Should top out around 77. Sunday, pretty much the same thing. Lovely highs in the upper 70s. 78 degrees now in the Boston area at 435.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Basketball player Brittany Griner is a superstar. The six-foot-nine center for the Phoenix Mercury helped the team earn a championship in 2014. She has two gold Olympic medals to her name. And since mid-February, she has been detained in Russia on drug charges. Today, in a court near Moscow, she denied any intent to break the law but pled guilty. Calls for her release are growing, and so is concern that the U.S. is not doing enough to advocate on her behalf. Nadine Damone is the head coach for women's basketball at Virginia State University, and she is one of more than 1,000 black women who signed a letter calling on President Biden to bring Griner home. She joins us now. Welcome. Hi. Good afternoon, everyone. Nadine, I know you have met Brittany Griner in the past. What was your reaction to today's news that she's pled guilty? Heartbroken. Um, she could be sentenced up to 10 years in Russian prison. That's not, you know, that's that's tough. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. So I'm just keeping her in my prayers, you know, to give her the strength and the courage and the wisdom as she walks through this, you know, this valley. And us, myself, and so many other supporters are just with her in spirit, trying to make sure she's okay. For a long time, we did not hear much about Griner's detention. And even now, many people feel like her case is not getting the attention that it should. Your letter speaks to that. Why do you think it has not gotten enough attention? Because I, I think for many people, it's like, what do you mean? She's overseas? What is she doing overseas? Why is she going overseas? So it's so many unanswered question that many average Americans wouldn't know. People don't know that many former WNBA players or WNBA players work year round. So she's on her way going to Russia to make another living, to continue her living and to be detained on something that to me, I don't know their rules, but I know Brittany wouldn't do anything to break the law on purpose. I know Brittany wouldn't do anything to step outside the boundaries, what is expected of her. She's a patriot, played for United States basketball, been on the Olympic team. I've done so much for this country. And, you know, if it was LeBron, everybody be in the uproar because they have a connection with LeBron. They have an idea, they have a touch or feel. And because Brittany Grinder doesn't have that with so many Americans, maybe that's the reason why we don't have the uproar as anybody else. And we should just speak plainly about this. Many female professional basketball players go abroad to play because of the wide chasm and salary disparities between women who play the sport and their male counterparts. Yes, and it's true. But you have to understand that was a way of living for a very long time until the WNBA came. And like anything else, that it takes time and it, for anything to grow, just like the NFL, the NBA. So I think eventually the WNBA will get to a point that young ladies don't have to go overseas to support themselves. But till then, many young ladies like myself, we played in the league. And then that, that you know, the following September, you're overseas to continue your lifestyle, to continue your 
your, your job. So with that being said, that's what's going on with her. If she was probably in the States and she could have made the money that she needs to make to, you know, to continue her lifestyle, to support her family, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. But because she had to go to Russia, which is one of the, the premier markets when you go overseas, and now you're in this situation because you're going to work, you get arrested and you're not able to come back home. That's just unfair. Just unfair. Do you think that other professional basketball players, especially women, black women, gay women like Griner, will look at what happened here and think twice about deciding to play in a place like Russia? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think just going overseas in general and in the state of so many changes, is a fluid changing, constant change of news with so many world policies and everything, I think you have to really think about the consciousness of, is it worth it? Can I do it? And is it possible? Is it safe? So all those things go in your head. It's not as like, you know, when I was coming out of school, it was exciting. Like, ooh, I'm going to chance to play overseas. I'm going to go play in France or I'm going to go play in Israel. You Right now with the state of affairs with so many things going on, I think it makes you say, hmm, I might want to sit this one out. What would you tell Brittany Griner if you could talk to her today? And I think the first thing I'll, I'll do, I'll give her a big hug. Um, I'll probably pray with her, you know, pray that God, you know, take care of this and lead this. And also, you know, stay strong, stay encouraged. Everybody here back at home is supporting you, praying for you. And whatever you need, we have, you know, we're going to try to support you however we can help and support and push this along to bring you back home. Let's do that. Who we need to speak to and get in those rooms so we can bring you home. We need you home. We miss you. We've been speaking to Nadine Damone, head of women's basketball at Virginia State University. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. President Biden today gave 17 Americans the highest honor the government can present to a civilian, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. As NPR's Scott Detrow reports, the award has become increasingly political in recent years, and today's recipients reflect Biden's politics. Biden was beaming as he draped medals around the necks of the honorees. He's taken a lot of hits lately, but this collection of Americans was made up of some of his favorite things. You had the Catholic social justice movement in Sister Simone Campbell. Nuns never forget a thing. (laughs) Unions with the posthumous honoring of the late AFL-CIO leader Richard Trumka. Richard Trumka was the American worker. And in retired Senator Alan Simpson and in the late John McCain, Republicans Biden could reach across the aisle and work with. We used to argue like hell on the Senate floor. But then we'd go down and have lunch together afterwards, as you remember. There's always been some politics involved in these medals. The president hands them out, after all. Former President Donald Trump made it overtly political, giving the medal to conservative talk radio giant and early Trump supporter Rush Limbaugh in the middle of his last State of the Union as one example. Biden aimed for a more traditional approach. But looking across the stage, you saw the embodiment of the pluralistic, multicultural, more progressive America that Biden believes in. Take the athletes he honored. Simone Biles and Megan Rapinoe are two of the greatest in Olympic history. Biles has won seven Olympic medals in gymnastics. Everyone stops everything every time she was on camera. In recent years, the two also became main characters in political culture wars. Biles, for taking herself out of competition during last year's Olympics due to mental health concerns, 
and soccer star Rapino for her outspoken stance on pay equity and other political issues. Trump and other conservatives have relentlessly attacked them. Today, Biden honored them. Beyond the World Cup titles and Olympic medals, Megan is a champion for essential American truth that everyone, everyone is entitled to be treated with dignity and respect. Everyone. Looking around the room at the end of the ceremony, Biden summed it up. This, he said, is America. At least in this divided and hyperpartisan moment, it's the America Biden believes in and wants to see. Scott Detrow, NPR News, the White House. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Last July 7th, gunmen burst into the bedroom of Haiti's president, killing him and unleashing a chaotic year in the Caribbean nation. Despite having arrested more than 40 people in the case, officials in Haiti are no closer to determining who was responsible. NPR's Carrie Kahn reports. A lone shoeshiner rings a small bell as he walks past small souvenir stands near downtown Port-au-Prince's Champs-de-Mars Plaza. Antoine sells bracelets and leather sandals to support his three children. He doesn't want to give his last name. He says it's too risky. He's skeptical Haitians will ever know why President Jovenel Moïse was killed. For me, in Haiti, the word justice doesn't exist in my vocabulary. I don't think he will ever find justice. I don't know any family who has found justice for their dead. It's very difficult. Difficult is an understatement. Gangs, which were already powerful before the assassination, have increased their control. As many as 150 people have been killed and thousands displaced in recent months. One gang has even taken control of the Palace of Justice. What we have in Haiti today, we have impunity. We don't have a rule of law. Pierre Esperance, a longtime human rights advocate, says despite the initial arrests, including 18 former Colombian soldiers and several Haitian Americans, no charges have been brought. And he says judges in the case, five so far, aren't given the independence to do their job. Four stepped down due to harassment and threats. It will be very difficult for them to conduct independent investigation because of the current government who don't want justice for Jovenel Moïse. The current acting prime minister, Ariel Henry, has been implicated in the crime after phone records show he spoke to a key suspect before and after the murder. Henry denies any wrongdoing. He didn't respond to NPR's request for comment. Many in Haiti are hoping a U.S. investigation will get to the bottom of the assassination, part of which was caught on tape by a neighbor. This is a DEA operation. U.S. agencies denied any involvement, although several suspects have been identified as past DEA informants. Three men are awaiting trial in the U.S., including Mario Palacios, one of the Colombian soldiers. His Miami lawyer, Alfredo Isaguirre, says Palacio was a pawn. He didn't sign up for this. And other people higher up in the country uh, used him and these other soldiers as, as sheep to, for their own benefit, 
Isagira wouldn't elaborate further, adding to the mystery the U.S. Justice Department has request a monitor for Palacios' trial so no classified information is made public, a move usually taken when the defendant has ties to a U.S. intelligence agency. Meanwhile, Port-au-Prince taxi driver Alfred Silvestre says justice for Moise is far off. He worries about what future Haiti has if its president is assassinated and no one is held accountable. If they really wanted to solve the crime, they could have, he says. He says hopefully the Americans can figure this out. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Mexico City. This story was reported with the help from Andre Palt in Haiti. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, film critic Bob Mondello remembers actor James Kahn, who has died at the age of 82. You've got to have the court deal with this repeatedly. You know, this is not a one-shot deal. You've got to keep presenting them cases, have them take up cases, because that gives them the opportunity to question, distinguish, undermine, or change the right to abortion. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. In sports, Yankees are in town for a four-game set at Fenway Park. Game one is tonight with Josh Winkowski pitching against the Yanks. Garrett Cole first pitches at 7-10. The Yankees have a 14-game lead over the second-place Sox and Tampa Bay Rays in the American League East. And in the forecast, clouds on the increase overnight tonight, falling to the mid-60s. Beautiful July weather continues tomorrow. Partly sunny skies, inching up to about 83. Saturday, mostly sunny, a little bit cooler. Highs around 77. Sunday should be sunny, with temperatures nudging 80 degrees. Cape Cod's looking pretty gorgeous, too. Sunshine tomorrow, Saturday and Sunday, sticking to the 70s. 77 degrees now in the Boston area at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where specialists in your type of cancer create personalized care plans just for you. Learn more at youhaveus.org. And MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. A hurricane comes and ruins your house bad enough when you're settled and secure, worse by a lot when you're a migrant worker. They had no choice but to rent shacks and trailers that were 50 and 60 years old with mold and mildew and cockroach dust. I'm Kai Rizdal, shelter, but barely, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Now that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade, finding and receiving abortion care will take more time and become more difficult for many patients. And that means abortions later in pregnancy are likely to become more common. But there are only a handful of clinics in the U.S. that offer abortion past 28 weeks of pregnancy. One of them is Southwestern Women's Options in Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
Reporter Grace Benninghoff recently visited the clinic and has this story. In the pale pink waiting room at Southwestern Women's Options, there is not a single empty chair. So just around here? Yes. Thank you. One woman covers her face, quietly sobbing. Another calmly fills out paperwork in a shirt that barely buttons over her belly. Many patients here have traveled from other states because this clinic offers later abortions. Since Texas restricted abortions last year, the clinic has seen more than twice as many patients per week, almost all of them after the first trimester. We've had to drastically change the way that we do things here in the clinic because there was no way that we would be able to meet that need. That's the assistant director of Southwestern Women's Options, Christina. She asked that only her middle name be used because she fears harassment. The spike in demand the clinic has seen these past nine months is minor compared to what's expected now that Roe has been overturned. We can only do so much. Like, we can only do what we can do. Now that abortions are no longer available in many states, later abortion will be more common. It will just take patients longer to get care. While they book flights, save up, and wait for appointments, their pregnancies will, of course, progress. One patient, Beth Vile, traveled from Oregon to Southwestern Women's Options in Albuquerque. She couldn't find a provider in her hometown. I only had 10 days to figure out where I was going to get an abortion. After a false negative on a home pregnancy test, a positive during a regular physical, and a visit to a crisis pregnancy center that tried to dissuade her from ending the pregnancy, she learned she was 26 weeks along. She had unstable housing and no family support. She knew she needed an abortion. Her doctor told her about Southwestern Women's Options. They had an appointment available, but the cost of the procedure, a flight, and hotel would add up to about $15,000. At that point, I thought abortion was out of the question. I didn't know what I was going to do. She had assistance from a combination of four organizations that help with abortion costs, and a family friend came through. Soon, she was on a flight to New Mexico. But she had some complications with the procedure— She was at the clinic for 20 hours. My doctor and my nurse stayed the entire time. They slept, (laughs) one of them slept on the the chair next to me. And it was a kind of compassion I had never experienced before. There are six states, plus the District of Columbia, where abortion is legal at any point in pregnancy. But it isn't always available past 28 weeks. There have always been reasons why someone might need an abortion so late— fetal abnormalities, life-threatening health risks. But now, with fewer clinics doing abortions at all, that list of reasons will be longer. These are tender moments. They're hard decisions. Dr. Curtis Boyd is founder of Southwestern Women's Options. Often these are very wanted pregnancies. Women are devastated. They want to view the baby. Some do, some don't. They want blessings. You know, they've, they've they've lost their baby. They want that acknowledged. Abortions after 28 weeks account for less than 1% of all procedures, and they require more specialized care. Boyd says the doctors who provide them face unrelenting harassment. Arson attempts here on this building, multiple fires set outside. We've had windows broken out. It's endless. Boyd is not only a doctor, he's also a Baptist minister. Even though the anti-abortion movement is supported by many in Boyd's faith, providing abortions aligns with his religious belief to be of service. I need to maintain a a sense of compassion. We're committed to each other. We are compassionate toward each other's situations and, and needs. This is a core belief for Boyd, to give to others all he can to help them succeed. Abortion care is what he has to offer. 
Even though New Mexico has laws protecting abortion, Boyd isn't certain the procedure will always be legal there. But he is certain about the implications for women. And they will never have equality if they cannot decide for themselves whether or not they're going to continue their pregnancy. Never. He says without that right, they will never have the liberty promised to them in the Constitution. For NPR News, I'm Grace Benninghoff in Albuquerque. Actor James Caan, who rose to stardom in The Godfather and spent the next six decades bringing a gruff realism to more than 100 film and television roles, has died. He was 82. Critic Bob Mondello has this appreciation. He was a coiled spring in The Godfather with a mind forever racing ahead of what he was saying. He wants us to send Michael to hear the proposition. And the promise is that the deal is so good that we can't refuse it. Sonny was the Corleone family's hot-headed heir apparent, and James Kahn gave him a hair-trigger temper and not much interest in playing nice. Sonny, we ought to hear what they had to say. No, 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 no more. Not this time, Consigliere. No more meetings, no more discussions, no more salons. Business not personal, Sonny. Well, in business, we'll have to suffer, all right? He was so effective in this gangster role that he was typecast as tough guys for years afterwards, in spite of the fact that just a year before The Godfather, he'd won hearts in a far gentler and even more widely seen role on TV, that of Chicago Bears halfback Brian Piccolo in the rending tale of Piccolo's battle with terminal cancer, Brian's song. I'm scared. I'm no idiot. This thing I got's bad, I know that. But, uh... Well, it's just a detour, Joy. I'm not going to let it stop me. I'm just not. There's no way. Khan had been rattling around television for a decade at that point, playing bit parts in shows from Wagon Train to Get Smart. But the one-two punch of Brian's song and The Godfather made him a bankable star. In short order, he appeared in the crime flick The Gambler, the extreme sport fantasy Rollerball, the war film A Bridge Too Far, and almost more dangerously than anything he did in those, he dared to sing along in Funny Lady while Barbara Streisand's Fanny Bryce was recording. During those same years, he passed on a lot of movies that worked out well for other actors, M.A.S.H., The French Connection, and Kramer vs. Kramer among them. In the 1980s, Khan went into a self-imposed exile for a few years, but Coppola brought him back in Gardens of Stone, and his career picked up again, being tormented by Kathy Bates in the horror film Misery, or playing the workaholic children's book publisher in the Christmas comedy Elf, who is not pleased when Will Ferrell's title character shows up unannounced. Just who the heck are you, what is your problem? I, I'm Buddy. I'm your son. Where'd you get this picture? Papa Elf gave it to me. Happy to play Scrooge amid so much sweetness, Khan was his gruffly engaging self, versatile, cocky, and confident in a way that had served him well for more than 50 years in a business where longevity can be its own reward. As of yesterday, he had several projects in the works. He'd finished shooting the gangster drama Fast Charlie and was reportedly eyeing yet another reunion with Francis Ford Coppola. James Khan, still after so many years, a coiled spring, still racing ahead. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike. Their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. 
more at crowdstrike.com NPR. And from Rosaline C. Swig, a member of the NPR Foundation Board of Trustees, working to help provide the highest quality public service journalism to communities across the USA. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, assisting those working from home, and also enabling remote assistance for customers at remotepc.com. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. WNBA star Brittany Griner has pleaded guilty to drug charges in a Russian court. Coming up, what's behind the plea and whether it could be the pretext for a prisoner exchange to get Griner released. It's Thursday, the 7th of July, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Biden administration says it's committed to making nuclear power part of its climate agenda. It's still half of our carbon-free power, and it is the largest single source of our carbon-free and emissions-free power. The federal government has been subsidizing nuclear plants that are in danger of closing. And people with Down syndrome are more susceptible to Alzheimer's. Now research are trying to modulate their immune systems to slow the progress of the disease. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced his resignation, triggering a leadership contest in his Conservative Party to replace him at Number 10 Downing Street. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from London. Johnson said he regretted not being able to continue to pursue projects on behalf of the British people, and he seemed to blame what he called his party's herd instinct for his departure. But analysts blame Johnson for creating scandals and then not telling the truth about them. Nicholas Allen teaches politics at Royal Holloway, University of London. The flaws in Boris Johnson's character have become much harder to ignore. Johnson's tendency to break rules, to dissemble, to lie, just caught up with him. Johnson said he will remain in office until his party chooses another leader. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. A House panel is calling on several gun manufacturers to testify later this month. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the request comes in the aftermath of a number of mass shootings in the U.S., including the most recent that killed seven people in Highland Park, Illinois. The House Oversight Committee is requesting testimony from the CEOs of three gun manufacturers, including Smith & Wesson brands. The panel earlier this year released preliminary findings from an investigation into the gun industry and its role in marketing and profiting from selling assault-style weapons. In a letter to the company, Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney said she wants the chief executive officers to explain to Congress and the American people why they continue to sell products to civilians that are meant to be used in the battlefield. Congress last month passed bipartisan legislation that strengthens the nation's gun safety laws, including an expansion of criminal background checks for some gun buyers. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Ukrainian military officials are denying claims that Russia has destroyed sophisticated new rocket launchers donated to Ukraine by the United States. 
NPR's Jason Bobian reports from Kharkiv that Ukraine started using the powerful new artillery systems in late June. The truck-mounted high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, are now the longest-range rocket launchers in Ukraine's arsenal. Margarita Rivenchenko, a press officer for the Ukrainian military, says the claim by Russia that they've destroyed the HIMARS is fake news. In a war dominated by artillery, she says the HIMARS now allow Ukrainian troops to hit Russian positions while staying miles away from the front lines. We say the, the sweat of artillery has saved lives of uh, other soldiers. She says in the two weeks since the HIMARS arrived, they've been a game changer on the battlefield. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. The S&P 500 closed the day on a fourth straight gain, up 57 points or 1.5 percent. The Dow gained 346. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There are delays on the MBTA commuter rail service in and out of North Station. Transportation officials say it's the result of a mechanical problem on a locomotive. Commuter rail operator Keolis says the train was out of service at North Station this afternoon when it began to spew smoke because a power supply for its air conditioning failed. No passengers were on the train and nobody was hurt. Several trains leaving North Station are delayed by up to 20 minutes. More than 2 million people in Massachusetts could get a check from the state under a new tax relief plan. Today, legislative leaders announced a plan for one-time rebates of $250 for individuals, $500 for married couples who file joint taxes. Individuals are eligible if they made between $38,000 and $100,000 last year, up to $150,000 for married couples. House Speaker Ron Mariano says the state has previously provided pandemic relief payments for lower-income residents. So we felt we had addressed a lot of the needs there, and the next step was to move up and take care of the folks who are in that middle-income area that, that so often is neglected. If the legislature passes the plan and if the governor approves, the rebates would be issued by the end of September. So-called crisis pregnancy centers in Worcester have been targeted by vandals. Worcester police say they were called this morning to a center on Shrewsbury Street where windows are smashed, some words painted on the sidewalk. Police say a short time later they got a call that a second center was vandalized on Pleasant Street. The incidents come nearly two weeks after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. In a statement released yesterday, Attorney General Maura Healy warned that crisis pregnancy centers are organizations, she says, that are seeking to prevent people from accessing abortion care. 77 degrees now in the Boston area, pretty heavy on the clouds this evening. Clouds overnight tonight as well, lows about 65. Tomorrow could rise to the low 80s with partial sunshine. Then for the weekend, beautiful. Mostly sunny, dry, breezy, both Saturday and Sunday. Highs in the upper 70s both days, which is where it is right now. 77 degrees at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a privacy company committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer private search and tracker blocking with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Yesterday, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris spoke to the wife of Brittany Griner and pledged to bring her home. 
Reiner is the WNBA star currently being held in Russia on drug charges. And today, she pleaded guilty as her trial continued in a Russian court. NPR's Charles Maines was in the courtroom in Moscow today and is on the line with us now. Hey, Charles. Hey there. So can you just paint the scene for us? Like, what was it like in there inside the courtroom? Well, first of all, it was hot and it was cramped. You know, this was a small courtroom in the summertime with no air conditioning and 20 people packed into it, uh, among them Britton Griner in a small locked cage in the corner. Uh, she actually sat quietly through most of the hearing today, um, occasionally standing up to address the judge with a quick, you know, yes or no, your honor, and kind of stooping to avoid hitting her head. She's 6'9", after all. Uh, but the prosecution today presented two more witnesses who said they were there at a Moscow airport in February uh, when customs officials discovered these vape cartridges with what they later determined was hash oil in Griner's bags. You know, and as the prosecution was wrapping for the day, uh, Griner suddenly said she had something to say. Uh, this is the voice of Griner and her Russian court interpreter. I would like to plead guilty on the charges. So she essentially uh, confessed, yeah. and she went on to explain that she was in a rush packing, and the cartridges accidentally ended up in her bag. Wow. So, I mean, after this, I guess, unexpected confession, what happens next in these proceedings for her? Well, you know, Griner and her lawyers say they'll explain her actions in more detail when the trial picks up again in a week's time on July 14th. Uh, her lawyers also made it clear that this was Brittany Griner's decision to plead guilty. Uh, they explained to her the consequences, which is, in fact, the possible 10-year jail sentence. Uh, but Griner, they said, argued she was a role model. She recognized that. She felt as though she should own up to her mistakes. And the defense said that they hoped uh, the judge would take that into account during sentencing. I mean, I do want to step back a little bit, Charles, because this case unfolded obviously against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine, cratering U.S.-Russia relations. The U.S. says Griner's being wrongfully detained. But given her guilty plea today, is that fair to say that she is being wrongfully detained? Well, you know, Russian officials on the one hand say this is just a drug case. Uh, on the other, they openly hint at the idea of a possible prisoner swap, uh, a trade involving Griner. Uh, today, Russia's deputy foreign minister that said that hype by Washington was undermining a potential prisoner swap. He also suggested that that swap would only happen after the trial had concluded. And so you have to wonder if that political reality was a, a factor in Griner's decision. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the White House this week, made clear that getting Griner home was a priority. I know that President Biden spoke with Griner's wife, apparently sent her a letter. What do we know about what's inside that letter? Well, we, we know uh, from the trial today uh, there were embassy officials on hand, including Elizabeth Rood. She's the deputy chief of mission who had this to say afterwards. Uh, again, I was able to speak with Ms. Griner in the courtroom. Uh, she said that she is eating well. She's able to read books. Uh, and under the circumstances, she is doing well. Most important, I was able to share with Ms. Greiner a letter from President Biden, and Ms. Greiner was able to read that letter. Now, we don't know the contents, uh, but the White House uh, has been very public in saying they're working overtime to get Greiner home, and Russia has made it very clear the trial has to end before that's even a possibility. Uh, so Greiner's confession today would appear to be part of a legal strategy to bring a quicker close to her trial and give the president some options. That is NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you, Charles. Thank you.
After years on the decline, nuclear power is seeing new investment from the federal government, as well as from big names like Bill Gates. But as NPR's Laura Benshoff reports, while nuclear power is racing to be part of a green energy future, it has some unique baggage to overcome. This year's big nuclear energy industry meeting took place in a windowless warren of Washington, D.C. conference rooms. Attendees milled around tables with swag and toy-sized model reactors. Before the lights went down, the music came up. And president of the Nuclear Energy Institute, Maria Korsnick, urged hundreds of attendees to picture the future. In this clean energy future, hundreds of reactors from the existing models that we have today to advance reactors, both large and small, dot the landscape. In this world, 30 years from now, countries have averted climate disaster, says Korsnick, with the help of nuclear power. Nuclear is the key to unlocking a zero carbon future. This is a pump-up speech, but there are signs of a shift. Just a few years ago, nuclear power plants across the country were shutting down, sometimes years ahead of schedule, in favor of cheaper natural gas power. Now, in an effort to cut down on carbon emissions, this year the federal government began subsidizing nuclear plants in danger of closing to the tune of $6 billion. Assistant Energy Secretary Catherine Huff told conference attendees that the Biden administration is committed to making nuclear a part of its climate agenda. It's still half of our carbon-free power, and it is the largest single source of our carbon-free and emissions-free power. States are also leaning into nuclear power. In light of California's grid stability issues, Governor Gavin Newsom started exploring options to keep the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant open, which is otherwise set to close in a couple of years. More than half of U.S. states include nuclear power in their clean energy plans, according to an Associated Press survey. Even coal-friendly West Virginia recently repealed its ban on nuclear power. Republican delegate Brandon Steele says the move is good for business and energy security. If West Virginia can be a, a major producer, that serves the energy needs of the entire country and, and contributes to our national security. His argument is not about climate change. During our conversation about nuclear power, Steele mentions coal more than two dozen times. It's a good complement to our coal-fired power. It's not a replacement, it's a complement. West Virginia has zero nuclear reactors, but Steele says the hope is to get in on the ground floor of new technology. That means safer, smaller, and importantly, cheaper reactors currently under development. Nuclear disruptors with names like NuScale and TerraPower hope to crack that code. But Edwin Lyman, director of nuclear power safety with the Union of Concerned Scientists, says that new technology has a long way to go to be competitive. The basic facts about nuclear power haven't changed. The technology is expensive. It has significant safety and security risks. Risks most recently seen when Russia shelled one of the world's largest nuclear power plants in Ukraine earlier this year. A recent Reuters-Ipsos poll also found more Americans support renewables than nuclear power. Jason Bordoff, director of the Center for Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, says some skepticism is warranted, but time is running out to avert climate disaster. We are so far away from coming anywhere close to meeting our climate goals that I think we need all tools in the toolbox. It's that dire timing that has helped 
push nuclear power back into the conversation. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. The former Minneapolis police officer who killed George Floyd will spend several more years in prison on top of his initial sentence for murder. Derek Chauvin is already serving a 22-and-a-half-year state sentence. And today, a federal judge gave him additional time for violating Floyd's civil rights. Reporter Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio News joins us now to explain more. Hi, Matt. Hello. Okay, so in state court, a Minnesota jury convicted Chauvin of murder and manslaughter after a trial that a lot of people watched last year. Can you just explain exactly what does this federal sentence address? Well, a few weeks after jurors delivered their verdict in the state case, federal prosecutors here charged Chauvin and three other former officers with a crime known as deprivation of rights under color of law. That's the government's way of saying that the four men violated George Floyd's civil rights by using excessive force while detaining him. In 2020, Chauvin was seen on bystander and body camera video kneeling on Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes, even after he lost consciousness. Chauvin pleaded guilty to the federal charges in December, and as part of his agreement with prosecutors, he also admitted to using excessive force against a teenager, John Pope, back in 2017. In that incident, Chauvin struck the then 14-year-old with a flashlight and kneeled on his neck and back as he lay handcuffed. So with this additional sentence today, how long will Chauvin actually be behind bars total? Well, under Minnesota law, Chauvin only has to serve two-thirds or about 15 years of his state sentence in prison with the rest on supervised release. The federal system is different. If he doesn't have any behavior problems, Chauvin can expect to serve around 85 percent of his sentence in federal prison. So he could be out in about 17 years. Going to a federal lockup means Chauvin is less likely to run into people he's arrested over his nearly two-decade career as a police officer. And I'm just curious, did Chauvin say anything during the sentencing hearing today? Yes, he read a brief statement, but he did not apologize to either John Pope or the Floyd family. He told Pope, quote, I hope you have a good relationship with your mother and also your sister, and I hope that you have the ability to get the best education possible to lead a productive and rewarding life. And to Floyd's children, Chauvin said, quote, I just want to say that I wish them all the best in their life and have excellent guidance in becoming great adults. Now, Matt, I, I know this sentencing today means that the legal proceedings against Chauvin are essentially over. But what about the other three former police officers who were on duty with Chauvin the night he killed George Floyd? Like what's ahead for them? Well, a federal jury convicted J. Alexander King, Thomas Lane, and Tu Tao of those same civil rights charges back in February. Following a trial, the judge has not scheduled sentencing hearings yet for them. All right. That is Matt Sepik with Minnesota Public Radio News. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered. Researchers explore the link between Down syndrome and Alzheimer's disease. Also, against the odds, a litter of red wolves has been born in captivity. These stories and more coming up.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red's Best with local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen. Red'sBest.com. And Boston Lights. Enjoy an evening lantern experience at Franklin Park Zoo with displays of hundreds of lanterns. Advanced tickets required at FranklinParkZoo.org. In business, stocks gain ground today. The Dow was up about one and a tenth percent, 347 points. It closed at 31,385. S&P rose for a fourth day to match the year's longest winning streak. The index picked up one and a half percent to close at 39.03. The Nasdaq pulled in more than two and a quarter percent to finish the day at 11,621. Details on this day in business coming up at 6:30 on Marketplace. It's 5:19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Boston Children's Hospital. Thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital. Nine years in a row. BostonChildrens.org answers. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker if you have one to play WBUR. Clouds tonight about 65 for a low. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Highs in the low 80s. 77 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed. Designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Night Pain, a nighttime pain reliever designed to help people fall asleep fast. It contains diphenhydramine and acetaminophen. More at ZZZQuill.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Scientists trying to save the critically endangered red wolf got a surprise this spring when a litter of pups was born in western Kentucky. The 12-year-old male wolf who fathered the pups was thought to be too old to do so. But Derek Operly with member station WKMS reports four babies were born. With only a little more than 250 red wolves in the world, births aren't all that common and are usually planned. But at Land Between the Lakes National Recreation Area, 12-year-old Jasper defied expectations to become the oldest breeding red wolf on record. He and mate Ember are parents to four bouncing baby pups. The recreation area's lead naturalist, John Polpeter, says red wolves used to be at the top of the food chain across the American South and were a familiar sight to residents before the late 1800s. When Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, and John James Audubon, when they were painting or writing about a wolf, they were writing about the red wolf. Red wolves are the most endangered canid in the world. With only around 20 known specimens in the wild, most are in captivity at facilities across the country. With distinctive reddish-colored fur on its neck and legs, a typical adult red wolf is around 4 feet long from tip to tail and weighs about 80 pounds, a little bigger than a German shepherd. What makes it really special, Paul Peter says, is it can only be found in the American South. The red wolf is purely American, but also purely only Southern. Widespread extermination campaigns, some led by the U.S. government, and habitat loss were the biggest contributors to the species' population decline. Some experts, like Red Wolf Species Survival Plan Coordinator Chris Lasher, link past attitudes toward the red wolf directly to European fairy tales. They thought they were, um, based on 
all those old stories that we hear, like Little Red Riding Hood and the Three Little Pigs and those type of things, that the Red Wolf was an evil animal that was going to you know, attack children and attack pets and, and kill their livestock. And there, nothing's further from the truth. Lasher works at the North Carolina Zoo in Asheboro. He coordinates with scientists and naturalists across the country to plan red wolf breeding programs and repopulation efforts. North Carolina is the home of the only wild population of red wolves since wildlife managers started re-releasing them there in 1987. Deline Beeland wrote a book about red wolves, hoping it would spark more conversation about saving the country's only native wolf species. She thinks the name should be changed to the American red wolf. Most people know Gray wolves are European species that crossed into North America in what we call a biological invasion, but they didn't evolve here. And I think that's a really important distinction. You know, this is America's red wolf, and we need to save it. To release more red wolves into the wild, Lasher says more genetic diversity and a bigger population base are needed. That means more wolves in captivity at places like zoos and recreation areas. We need a minimum of 330 animals under human care to be able to um, provide animals to multiple recovery locations. Um, right now, we only have space for about 260 animals under human care. The pups at Land Between the Lakes National Recreation Area will stay with their parents and siblings for at least 18 months. Then they'll be transferred to a zoo to be part of a breeding program or begin training for release into the wild. For NPR News, I'm Derek Operly in Katy's, Kentucky. Alzheimer's disease poses a major threat to people with Down syndrome. Many develop the disease in their 40s and 50s, and most will get it if they live long enough. So researchers are looking to people with Down syndrome to help find drugs that can treat Alzheimer's. NPR's John Hamilton reports. Frank Stevens is an actor, a writer, and an advocate for people with Down syndrome. I am... A man with a very good life. I have a beautiful girlfriend. Stevens, who is 40, also has a major concern. His mother is in the late stages of Alzheimer's. She is now almost childlike now. It's very hard to see. And as a person with Down syndrome, Stevens is aware that he is likely to develop Alzheimer's himself. So he raises money for Alzheimer's research through the Global Down Syndrome Foundation, and he's part of a research effort called the Human Trisome Project. I did take a blood test. I, I took it to see whether or not I may end up with Alzheimer's. Stephen's goal is to help scientists find a drug that can defeat Alzheimer's. That would be amazing. I hope that not only people with Down syndrome can take it, but also people without Down syndrome can take it too. And I'm hoping I can do that from my, from my mother. People with Down syndrome carry an extra copy of chromosome 21. That causes intellectual disability. It also changes the brain in at least two ways that can lead to Alzheimer's. People with Down syndrome give us a unique opportunity to understand what modulates the severity and the progress of Alzheimer's disease. Joaquin Espinosa directs the Linda Cernick Institute for Down syndrome in Aurora, Colorado. He says people with a condition have a hyperactive immune system that protects them from some cancers, but also leads to chronic inflammation and of importance to Alzheimer's, they have brain inflammation across the lifespan. There's growing evidence that brain inflammation plays an important role in Alzheimer's. So Espinosa and a team of researchers are looking for ways to keep the brain's immune system in check. We are running clinical trials for immune modulating agents in Down syndrome. So there is an active trial right now to tone down that response with a class of drugs known as JAK inhibitors. That's J-A-K. 
JAK inhibitors are used to reduce inflammation in the joints of people with rheumatoid arthritis. Espinosa hopes these drugs can do the same thing in the brain and cut the risk of Alzheimer's. So he's trying the approach in people with Down syndrome. Another team at the Cernic Institute is taking a different approach to modulating the immune system. Dr. Huntington Potter says the idea is to boost a special immune cell found in the brain. And its job is to eat up things that aren't supposed to be there, like amyloid. Amyloid is the sticky substance that builds up in the brains of people with Alzheimer's. And that's the second reason people with Down syndrome are vulnerable to the disease. The extra chromosome they carry causes the brain to produce extra amyloid. Potter hopes to counter this with a drug called leukine, which increases the immune cells that eat amyloid. Last year, he did a small study to establish that leukine could safely be given to people with Alzheimer's. We did not expect to see a cognitive benefit, but three weeks of treatment of leukine and the individuals uh, actually improved in their cognition. Those people didn't have Down syndrome. But Potter says in March, his team showed that leukine also worked in mice that did have Down syndrome. That then allowed us to apply for a grant to study leukine in young adults with Down syndrome before they get Alzheimer's disease. They got the grant. Now they're preparing to recruit young adults with Down syndrome. Lena Patel, a psychologist at the Cernic Institute, is confident that people will enroll in the study. The self-advocates that we work with really are proponents because they think that they do see that it is directly impacting their lives. And the lives of others. The scientists expect to know whether leukine works in the next five years or so. John Hamilton, NPR News. In the year and a half since the Capitol insurrection, former President Trump's lies about a stolen election have spawned a nationwide movement, and its leaders have gone grassroots, spreading disinformation in car dealerships, church banquet halls, and backyards. It's this constellation of election conspiracy theorists. Rather than going at the national level, they've kind of decentralized post-January 6th and really trying to affect change at the lowest possible level. NPR followed a few of the key players. Hear more about them today on our daily podcast, Consider This. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the plan to protect the endangered salmon in Washington state by removing four large dams. In the forecast, pretty heavy on the clouds overnight tonight. Look for temperatures about 65 degrees. Tomorrow could rise to the low 80s with partial sunshine. And then for the weekend, mostly sunny skies, dry and breezy both Saturday and Sunday. Highs in the upper 70s both days. In sports, Yankees are in town for four games at Fenway. Game one tonight has Josh Josh Winkowski pitching against the Yankees' Garrett Cole. First pitch is at 7.10 tonight. It's now 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Building Restoration Services, diagnosing and repairing building envelope and water intrusion problems. Consultation scheduling at brsboston.com. And Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. The Universal Free School Meals Program is over, just as inflation is rising. Food is one of the most important school supplies children have. So what happens when children lose school meals? They face a double whammy of meals lost at home and at school. It exacerbates all of the other problems that hungry children face. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join us on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Britain's embattled Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced he's stepping down amid a mass revolt by top members of his government. During his three years in office, Johnson brazenly bent and sometimes broke the rules of British politics. But as Villa Marx reports, Johnson vows to remain in office until a successor is chosen. Standing outside 10 Downing Street with staff and family members looking on, Johnson acknowledged it would be, quote, painful that he would not see his ideas and programs brought to fruition. Several Conservative legislators in Parliament have already announced their desire to replace Johnson, with a new leadership contest likely to begin next week. The 58-year-old politician who took Britain out of the European Union and through the coronavirus pandemic was brought down by one too many scandals, the latest involving a politician he appointed who had been accused of sexual misconduct. A federal jury in San Jose, California, has convicted a former executive of blood testing company Theranos on 12 counts of fraud. As NPR's Bobby Allen tells us, today's guilty verdict comes six months after the company's founder, Elizabeth Holmes, was also convicted. Ramesh Sunny Balwani was the number two executive of Theranos. He helped build the company into one of the buzziest startups in Silicon Valley history on the promise of revolutionizing the science of blood testing. Theranos raised nearly a billion dollars as its magnetic CEO, Elizabeth Holmes, graced the cover of magazines. After the company failed, federal prosecutors charged Holmes and Balwani in 2018, alleging that they knowingly duped investors by exaggerating the capabilities of the company's finger prick tests and lying about its performance. Balwani and Holmes are former romantic partners. Both are now scheduled to be sentenced this fall, each facing the possibility of decades in prison. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street for a second day in a row. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some commuter rail trains in and out of North Station are experiencing delays of up to 20 minutes. It's the domino effect of a mechanical problem earlier this afternoon that sent smoke spewing from a commuter rail locomotive at the station. Keola says the train was out of service at the time. Nobody was hurt. It says the smoke resulted from a failure in an engine that runs air conditioning for the trains. The reward for information that leads to the arrest and indictment of whomever killed a New Hampshire couple is now up to $50,000. Stephen and Jawende Reed were shot to death when the interracial couple took a walk in a wooded area near their Concord, New Hampshire home in April. Investigators announced the higher reward today, which is the result of two anonymous donations. A Holbrook man has been indicted for hate crime charges for assaulting a neighbor he apparently thought was Russian. Today, a Norfolk County grand jury indicted John Houlihan on 11 charges. Prosecutors say in May he approached the victim who was in his car, punched the man, and then followed him into his home, hit him with a bottle, and kicked him. Police say he made anti-Russian comments during the attack on the legal immigrant who was from Egypt. Houlihan has pleaded not guilty to the charges. Environmental advocates in Massachusetts are pushing for lawmakers to ban food packaging made with so-called forever chemicals. This week, the governor of Rhode Island signed a bill preventing packaging from PFAS from being manufactured, sold, or distributed in that state. The chemicals have been found in drinking water in several Massachusetts communities. They do not break down. They've been linked to cancers, liver disease, and other health problems. Legislative Director for Massburg, Deidre Cummings, says Massachusetts should be leading on this issue. We're using food packaging for just a few minutes, but the effect and the damage of that food packaging lasts in our environment now for, for, for many, many years, and it's doing significant hazard. 
A similar bill has stalled in the Massachusetts legislature. Manufacturers of the chemicals have opposed the proposal. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance, with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Heavy on the clouds this evening, falling to the mid-60s. And then for tomorrow, partly sunny, inching up to about 83. Saturday, mostly sunny in the 70s. Same for Sunday, sunny temperatures in the 70s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of a line probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. In a speech today, Russian President Vladimir Putin said his country has not even begun to fight in Ukraine, and he challenged the West to try to defeat Russia on the battlefield. Meanwhile, the Russian army appears close to taking the entire Donbass region in Ukraine's east. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. The Donetsk city of Slovyansk is now on Russia's path as it seeks to conquer the Donbass. NPR reached Slovyansk Mayor Vadim Lyach on the phone. There are constant shellings, missiles and artillery. Our citizens have been killed and wounded. This war of attrition is exhausting, and I think whoever holds out longer will be the winner. NPR visited Slovyansk in 2014 when it was briefly occupied by separatist forces before Ukraine got it back. In February of this year, NPR visited Mayor Lyach in his town hall. He expressed pride in his city's Ukrainian spirit. With Russian forces now bearing down on his city, Lyach says he's just trying to get people out. Katarzyna Zist, a specialist on the Russian military who teaches at the Norwegian University Defense College, says Russian President Vladimir Putin was pleased when his troops finally took Luhansk, but now he wants all of the Donbass. Of course, taking the whole Donbass would be even better to present this war effort and explain the, the Russian public that this all was worth it and indeed that the Russian army has some tangible victory. But I do not think that this will be an end uh, to the Russian offensive. She says Putin's objective is subjugating all of Ukraine. The West is providing arms to keep that from happening, but a soldier NPR met on a break from fighting in the Donbass says aid is not coming fast enough. He gives his nom de guerre, Badger, and an anecdote. Recently, we had a task to save some of our soldiers, but we couldn't get to them because we were under heavy shelling. And on the radio, you could hear calls for artillery to back us up. And artillery answered, we can't help you. We have no more shells. That may be changing. 
In his nightly address, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said the effects of allies' powerful new precision weapons are being seen on the front for the first time. Our defenders are inflicting noticeable blows on warehouses and other critical logistics points of the occupiers, he said. Despite the huge toll the war is taking on Russia militarily, economically and politically, says Zist, Putin will continue because Ukraine is just a piece of his overall plan. Russia wants to uh, have a new uh, European security architecture, but also they have ambitions in the broader international order. If I would simplify, I would say they would like to revert to the 19th century. It's basically a concept of a new concert of great powers. A kind of big boys club, says Zist, where countries like Ukraine, the Baltic nations, or even Poland wouldn't necessarily have full sovereignty or control their destinies. Such a vision is completely unacceptable to the West, she says, but she doesn't believe Putin will stop until somebody stops him. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. In the Pacific Northwest, tribal governments are pressuring President Biden to make good on his pledge to uphold treaties in Indian country. Tribes there want four large dams removed from the Snake River in Washington state in order to protect the salmon, whose numbers are dwindling. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports. Growing up, Shannon Wheeler heard stories passed down from elders about the enormous salmon runs here on this tributary, just a few miles upstream of the Snake River. Fish making the long journey up here from the Pacific to spawn were also huge and hardy. Those are the types of stories even Lewis and Clark talk about. Wheeler is vice chairman of the Nez Perce tribe, which first sued the U.S. government in the 1990s as salmon in parts of this basin were on the brink of extinction. Despite years of work helping them get around the dams, the populations remain about the same as back then. And we should know that a keystone species like salmon go extinct well, who's next? The Nespers are pushing for swift passage of a rare bipartisan bill before Congress. It would breach four dams, drain the reservoirs, and open up 140 miles of river for the fish to spawn in. A new report by the state of Washington estimates that could increase salmon runs 15-fold. For Wheeler, it's also about upholding treaties signed in the 1850s in which the U.S. government promised to protect his people's ancestral lands. We ceded over 13 million acres to the United States of America. We aided the United States of America in its growth. All we're asking for is for the United States of America to uphold their responsibility and their promises. Across the Northwest, dams are being removed lately with an eye toward species protection, but also cultural responsibility. Eunice Blavaskunis is an anthropologist at nearby Whitman College in Washington. This region was settled in a way that cheated a lot of people. That reckoning is about recognizing indigenous people as political agents, as human beings with a long cultural legacy. One, she says, that far predates the construction of the four Snake River dams, which started in the 1950s. But the Biden administration, with its carbon-free energy goals, is also in a bind. These dams provide enough power for some 800,000 homes, and barges along the river system dramatically reduce shipping costs for farmers, as they tout in this new ad. The Pacific Northwest is the breadbasket for our region and the world. 
Keeping Snake River dams in operation is essential to keep our farms working. Most wheat farmers here can't ship by rail, and barges are a lot cheaper than trucking. Ryan Poe farms in remote central Washington. Obviously, I feel like breaching is, you know, just a, you know, a catastrophic for a lot of us other users of these systems. But Poe is also a sportsman and wants to see the salmon save too. Taxpayers have spent millions over the years on hatcheries, fish ladders, even driving the fish in trucks around the dams. Tim Dykstra is a fisheries biologist with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which has long maintained the dams and salmon can coexist. We have spent a great deal of effort to look at the dams and do our best to make the dams as invisible as possible to fish. Federal officials say a high number of salmon survive passing through the four dams, but climate change and poor ocean conditions are also reducing their numbers. Still, the U.S. now has its first-ever Indigenous Interior Secretary. Touring Idaho this month, Deb Holland said tribes are the original stewards of the land here, and close consultation with them is ongoing. I think the salmon are incredibly important, and they have tremendous cultural and traditional meaning to Indian tribes across the West. On the Nez Perce Reservation, Shannon Wheeler heard that as a sign that tribes are finally getting a voice in American politics. We definitely feel that the needle is moving, and we definitely know that our concerns are making it to the highest levels. He says they're ready to hold American leaders accountable. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Lapway, Idaho. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There's a roadside attraction in Georgia that was already enigmatic before an explosion made it more so. The Georgia Guidestones are big granite slabs inscribed with messages in multiple languages. The monument was commissioned by someone called R.C. Christian around 1980, Many believe that's a pseudonym. Just before dawn on Wednesday, an explosion turned one of the granite panels into rubble. It's not clear who did it or why, though a gubernatorial candidate recently called for that monument to be torn down. WABE's Raul Bally covers Georgia politics and joins us now. Hey there. Hey. So there is a political story here, but first, what exactly is or um, maybe it's what were the Georgia Guidestones? So some folks had nicknamed it the American Stonehenge because the way it sort of looked like the monument in England, four 19-foot-tall granite panels carved out of local stone in northeast Georgia. They featured inscriptions in multiple languages, including English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, and Arabic. And, you know, it had things about living in the age of reason, but there were also some controversial things like having a world court and limiting, limiting the global population to 500 million. Now, add that folks didn't know who R.C. Christian was or who funded the monument and, and why, it became a local mystery. Conspiracy theories eventually abound on the internet and hundreds if not thousands of people came to Elbert County every year to see the stones. Wow. So this monument has been around for some 40 years now. What made it become a target right now? So here's what happened. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation and the local sheriff's office believe that one or more people set off what they're calling an explosive device early Wednesday morning. The Bureau released some surveillance video of a silver car speeding away from the area. 
the video footage that was released did not show any people, so it's not clear who did this. One of the panels was destroyed in the blast, but the whole thing was eventually torn down for, for safety reasons. So even though the stones have been around for decades, you asked why it's been in the news now. It's It came back in the headlines in May during the Republican primary for Georgia governor. One of the candidates, Candace Taylor, tweeted out a campaign video about the monument. We've watched as people have destroyed our history and monuments, and in their place, they have erected statues to their own gods. Now, the tweet that came with that video also said, quote, elect me governor of Georgia, and I will bring the satanic regime to its knees and demolish the Georgia Guidestones, unquote. Worth noting that Taylor got more than 41,000 votes, but finished third in the race, which is only 3% of the vote, and she's also not conceded the race. Mm, okay, so what has been the response there to this destruction? So a couple hours after the explosion, we heard from Candace Taylor via tweet. She said, quote, God is God by himself. He can do anything he wants to do. That includes striking down sat satanic guidestones. Then last night, she posted a video making clear, don't associate me with anything that's not legal. I did talk to Tom McCall, who's a representative who represented Elbert County, the legislator for 25 years. He doesn't know if tourists and, and the money is going to come back. He just kind of wonders if the mystery is going to go away, even if it's rebuilt. That is WABE's politics reporter, Raul Bali. Thank you so much. Great to be on. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, the tough job to eradicate once and for all the slimy, parasite-carrying, stucco-eating, invasive giant snails of Florida. They do have pretty shells, though. And coming up on Marketplace this evening, five years ago, Hurricane Irma devastated a Florida community of migrant workers. Now there's a push to make the town more resilient. So it's concrete block, still reinforced, sprinklered, energy efficient, built beyond code, designed for 180 mile an hour wind, the same as for a disaster center. A community preparing for the next storm coming up. Tonight at Fenway Park, Red Sox try to shake off their latest losses as they face the Yankees for their first game in their four-game Boston stint. Sox will put Josh Winkowski on the mound against New York's Garrett Cole. First pitch is at 7:10 tonight. The forecast should fall to the mid-60s overnight tonight, mainly cloudy skies. Week should come to a lovely end. Tomorrow partly sunny, breezy, moving up to the mid-80s. Saturday, mostly sunny, back down in the mid to upper 70s. And for Sunday, still sunny, about 79 degrees. The nice weather should last into next week. Dry, breezy, beautiful weather on Cape Cod, by the way, too, with sunshine tomorrow through Sunday, highs in the mid-70s. It's 549. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, we dive beneath the headlines of the week's biggest story. This week, the Patriot Front march through Boston that marred the fourth. One of the region's top online extremism experts joins a former Boston city councilor to tell us how hate groups go unseen and why Boston was caught flat-footed. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. 
FIFA, soccer's governing body, is hoping they can improve one of the game's most disputed rules with the help of artificial intelligence. The organization says it will roll out the use of AI at the upcoming World Cup to help call when a player is offside. When the AI decides a player is offside, it will then alert the team of video referees, which, according to FIFA, will help make accurate decisions happen more quickly. For more on this, let's bring in ESPN FC editor Dale Johnson. He joins us from London. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi there. How are you doing? I am well, Dale. Explain to listeners why are offside calls in soccer so often disputed and how could this technology possibly help? Yeah, so uh, offside is a really crucial part of the game. It's uh, involved in every single goal and every single penalty or attacking move. Basically, the player that scores uh, or the player who touches the ball must have two defensive players in front of him when the ball's played. So it's really important that this is got right because obviously if you get an offside decision wrong, then that puts that player in an advantage that they shouldn't have and can lead and has led to incorrect goals before VAR came in. So this technology will be much better, it will be faster, it will be more accurate, and FIFA hopes that it's going to fix a lot of the problems that, uh, that we've seen. Okay, so let's stay with that for a second. So if I am a fan and I'm watching at home or I'm sitting in a stadium, what difference will I see? So the key change that this is going to bring is it's going to be much faster. A straightforward but close offside decision at the moment, FIFA says that these take globally around 70 seconds. According to FIFA, this will now be 25 seconds. So you're basically cutting it by almost two-thirds, which will be a, make a big difference, especially when goals are scored, because for the most part, these decisions will be made while the players will be celebrating. So the people in the ground and the people at home will probably not notice a lot more VAR reviews compared to what they notice today. So people who follow the game know how controversial the offside rule can be at times. And in the past, officials have tried all sorts of solutions like video-assisted referees known as VAR. How much of a difference could AI make compared to previous innovations? Well, I mean, before 2017, 2018, football was just totally against any kind of technology coming into the game. In fact, the goal line technology, which came in about four or five years before that, people were were massively against that as well. And that uses AI to produce a 3D animation of whether the ball is over the line or not. Now, FIFA say that because people are so accepting of, the, of that AI 3D animation for the goal line technology, that means that it will be able to fix the offside. So get rid of those doubts, gets rid of those points where the, the fan looking at home or looking in the stadium looks at these pictures and thinks there's no way that player is offside. That can't be offside. And get it to the situation where people do look at these 3D animations and say to themselves, fair enough, I accept that decision. FIFA is introducing this essentially on soccer's biggest stage at November's World Cup. Do you have any understanding of why this timing? Has this been something that FIFA has been working on implementing for a while now? This is all part of FIFA's grand plan in terms of improving offside and the visualization. They're, they're both together as separates, but obviously they work together. Now, this FIFA after the World Cup will give this to the, to, the, to the world, give this to the leagues. So this won't be something that is just for the World Cup. It will see offside improve much more in other leagues next year in 2023. So that, that, this is FIFA's big idea. It's uh, to improve the game and, and drive it forward by introducing this AI technology. That's Dale Johnson, editor for ESPN FC. Thank you so much for being here. Great. That's no problem. Thanks. Support for All Tech Considered comes from C3AI. 
C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll, designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. Okay, Florida is again pitted in a battle with the giant African land snail. The invasive, disease-spreading, let's just say it, really gross snail was declared eradicated last year. But now they are back. WUSF Jessica Mazaros reports. The giant African land snail is not your garden variety species. It can grow up to eight inches long. It'll devour your plants. It can give you meningitis because it carries the rat lungworm parasite. And it can eat your house. Brian Benson is with Florida's Agricultural Department. They crawl up the sides of houses, absorbing calcium out of the stucco and leaving fecal matter under the eaves. Florida officials thought they'd done away with the snails in South Florida last year after a 10-year battle. But two weeks ago, they turned up 300 miles away in a home garden. Since then, more than 1,000 have been collected in an area of Pasco County, which is now under quarantine. Benson says one big worry is that these mollusks reproduce quickly. If they were established, your agricultural crops would fail. Snails would consume them as they were growing. It's not clear how these snails entered Florida again. They're different than the ones found previously. Those had gray-brown flesh. These are white, which is the more prized color in the illegal pet trade. It's against the law to import or possess these snails in the U.S. without a permit, though Benson says people do. They are intercepted throughout the country. I mean, at all major ports coming in from other parts of the world, usually intercepted on passengers. The quarantine in Pasco County will last about three years. Labrador retrievers trained to sniff out the snails are hot on their trail, and snail bait is being laid. Authorities warn people not to touch the snails if they find one and to contact them. For NPR News, I'm Jessica Mazaros in Tampa. The popular Japanese comic book artist Kazuki Takahashi was found dead yesterday. He's the creator of the series Yu-Gi-Oh!, which gained worldwide popularity. According to the Japanese public broadcaster NHK, his body was found off the coast of Nago in Okinawa, wearing snorkeling gear. He was 60. And as NPR's Andrew Limbong reports, his creation inspired a franchise that is still going strong today. In the new game Yu-Gi-Oh! Master Duel, you draw cards to summon monsters and cast spells. The game just came out in January, and it's already been downloaded more than 30 million times, becoming a feather in the cap of the game's publisher, Konami. Originally, Yu-Gi-Oh! had very little to do with using cards to summon monsters. Kazuki Takahashi was a horror fan, and the comic he first published in 1996 was about a young boy named Yugi who solves an ancient Egyptian puzzle and gets possessed by a dark spirit that helps Yugi confront bullies and bad guys with mystic games. The card monster fighting stuff got introduced later into the series, but it was so loved by fans that it became the focus of an anime that ran in the U.S. for six years. I've got to believe in the cards like my friends believe in me. And a trading card game that's sold billions of cards worldwide. 
The game's publisher, Konami, sent out a statement about Takahashi today, saying, quote, Together with his countless fans, we pledge to carry on the Yu-Gi-Oh! legacy with all the love and care it deserves. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from ProQuest, whose website Black Freedom Struggle in the U.S. curates 2,000 documents related to the fight for civil and human rights, open to all at ProQuest.com slash go slash Black Freedom. And from Culligan Water, since 1936, a local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at Culligan.com. This is WBUR, sunshine between the clouds this evening. Overnight tonight, mainly cloudy skies. Temperatures about the mid-60s. Then the week should come to a lovely end. Tomorrow, partly sunny, breezy, moving up to the mid-80s. Saturday, mostly sunny, back down to the mid to upper 70s. And for Sunday, still sunny, about 79 degrees. The nice weather could last into next week. Hot times at Fenway Park this weekend. The Yankees and Red Sox start up their four-game series tonight with Josh Winkowski getting the nod for Boston, Garrett Cole for New York. Next weekend, the two teams switch to Yankee Stadium for a three-game series. 77 degrees now in the Boston area. It's 559. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he's resigning. What pulled him out of the top post coming up? It's Thursday, the 7th of July, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. We'll hear from a trauma medical director about gun violence and its devastating impact on public health. And a Filipino news organization that's been critical of the nation's war on drugs is now facing an order from the government that it stop operating. It's the first time that this regulatory agency is trying to shut down a news group, meaning to go right up against freedom of the press. The head of that news outlet, Nobel Prize winner Maria Ressa, coming up. It's 601 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. 85 airports across the U.S. are in line for a major upgrade as the Federal Aviation Administration is announcing it's allocating nearly a billion dollars in grants to the task. The funding is from a major infrastructure spending measure, and it will be used for upgraded passenger terminals and a new control tower. A House panel is calling on several gun manufacturers to testify later this month. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the request comes in the aftermath of a number of mass shootings in the U.S., including the most recent that killed seven people in Highland Park, Illinois. 
The House Oversight Committee is requesting testimony from the CEOs of three gun manufacturers, including Smith & Wesson Brands. The panel earlier this year released preliminary findings from an investigation into the gun industry and its role in marketing and profiting from selling assault-style weapons. In a letter to the company, Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney said she wants the chief executive officers to explain to Congress and the American people why they continue to sell products to civilians that are meant to be used in the battlefield. Congress last month passed bipartisan legislation that strengthens the nation's gun safety laws, including an expansion of criminal background checks for some gun buyers. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Ukrainian military officials are denying claims that Russia has destroyed sophisticated new rocket launchers donated to Ukraine by the United States. NPR's Jason Bobian reports from Kharkiv that Ukraine started using the powerful new artillery systems in late June. The truck-mounted high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, are now the longest-range rocket launchers in Ukraine's arsenal. Margarita Rivenchenko, a press officer for the Ukrainian military, says the claim by Russia that they've destroyed the HIMARS is fake news. In a war dominated by artillery, she says the HIMARS now allow Ukrainian troops to hit Russian positions while staying miles away from the front lines. We say the, the sweat of artillery has saved lives of uh, other soldiers. She says in the two weeks since the HIMARS arrived, they've been a game changer on the battlefield. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. The S&P 500 closed the day on a fourth straight gain, up 57 points or 1.5 percent. The Dow gained 346. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullen. Some Massachusetts lawmakers want to provide taxpayers with rebate checks to help people deal with rising inflation. Today, top Democrats in the House said they've agreed on a plan to send $250 checks to individual taxpayers and $500 checks to couples who file taxes jointly. The money would come from the state's budget surplus. Lawmakers now need to draft legislation and vote on it by the end of the session later this month. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden is calling on the governors and legislatures of states that have easy access gun purchase laws to consider the impact of gun trafficking to cities such as Boston. The district attorney says more than 75 percent of the illegal guns used in the Boston area's crimes come from out of state. He says data collected by his office show most illegal guns seized can be traced to New Hampshire, Maine, and six other states. Hayden says gun trafficking has led to a recent increase in shootings in Boston during the daytime and a higher number of teenagers with guns. New England's electricity grid is in for a major transformation over the next three decades. A new report from the grid's operator, ISO New England, says the region is moving away from fossil fuels. Reporter Mara Huplamazian reports. The grid operator's report says decarbonization will become a way of life in New England, with heat pumps and electric vehicles increasing regional demand for electricity. At the same time, ISO forecasts that reliance on natural gas will decline, while renewable sources will pick up the slack. Every New England state except New Hampshire has already set aggressive targets for increasing those resources. To meet demand, ISO is forecasting wind power to play a greater role, with battery storage and solar panels accounting for much of the rest. The infrastructure, all the substations, wires, and underwater cables that bring that electricity to homes will also need attention, the report says. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. There's a new proposal that may preserve cancer care in Framingham. Metro West Medical Care announced this week it's looking for a way to continue to offer outpatient oncology services. The
The hospital announced in April it was seeking state approval to close its outpatient oncology department in Framingham. Now Metro West says it's in talks with Tufts Medicine to have the hospital group take over that unit. Opponents of the closure say it would burden patients by forcing them to travel farther for home care. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is vowing to increase efforts to address mental health issues among young people. Today, she went to an East Boston nonprofit that provides children access to programs to create music. She said the city's committed to partnering with similar programs to help children whose families are struggling with issues such as the pandemic, housing, and transportation. It changes lives when we truly integrate mental health, community building, arts and culture, and every other possible support that we can give to our young people. Wu says the city is dedicated to improving mental health. She says one example is the city created a new position this spring of chief behavioral health officer at the Boston Public Health Commission. Nice evening, but increasing clouds overnight tonight. Temperatures right around the mid-60s. Tomorrow could rise to the low 80s with partial sunshine. Then for the weekend, mostly sunny, dry, and breezy both Saturday and Sunday. Highs in the upper 70s both days. 77 degrees in the Boston area at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. The Boris Johnson era is coming to a close. Under tremendous pressure, Johnson was forced to agree to step down as leader of Britain's Conservative Party this morning, making way for a new prime minister. For more, we turn to NPR's Frank Langfitt in London. Hey, Frank. Hey, Juana. Frank, this was another huge day in British politics. What did Johnson say today about why he was resigning? Well, you know, as interesting, Juana, he didn't want to go, and he said so. He presented himself as kind of a victim of his own party. He said he wanted to stay on to serve the British public, but his party wouldn't let him. And and this is how he put it. And in the last few days, I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when we're actually only a handful of points behind in the polls. I regret uh, not to have been successful in those arguments. So, Frank, did you hear him take any responsibility at all for his own downfall? No, he did not. And he said he's not leaving until the party chooses a new leader who, of course, will become the UK's new prime minister. Okay. And what do people there think of that, this idea that Johnson wants to stay on for a while? And also, how would that even work? Yeah, so they don't like it. I mean, his party was doing everything to get him out this week. Um, today, Number 10 Downing Street says that Johnson will serve as a caretaker prime minister, basically. And he won't implement any new policies, no major financial decisions. Now, of course, wanna, there's a lot of skepticism because of Johnson's history of breaking rules and norms. And John Major, he's former conservative prime minister here, he calls this whole idea unwise, which is you know, British un- understatement for like a terrible way mm. to do something. And Major, he wrote to party leaders today saying, here's the quote, Some will argue his new cabinet will restrain him. I merely note that his previous cabinet did not or could not do so. Okay, Frank, you have covered Johnson for years now. So I have to ask you, what do you think it was that ultimately brought him down? 
You know, I know this is going to sound really quaint these days, but I think this is true. It was failure to tell the truth. And this has been a hallmark of Johnson's career. You go back when he worked for the Times of London as a journalist, he was fired for making up quotes. He was fired from a job later when he was in the Conservative Party uh, for lying about an affair. But I think what may have happened is, you know, when you become prime minister, uh, there's a lot more scrutiny and the stakes are a lot higher. Um, you know, he didn't tell the truth about parties that his staff were throwing during the pandemic that violated the government's own COVID rules. And that really upset people here who most of whom had followed the rules in some cases didn't say goodbye to loved ones who were dying of COVID. The final scandal, the one that really toppled him today, he appointed a man who was accused of sexual harassment to a position of power in the party, but he denied that he'd known about the claim. That turned out not to be true. Now, today... Juan, I went down this morning to Number 10 Downing Street, and I ran into a guy named David Summers. And John, he's a Johnson supporter. He's a retired cattle farmer from the southwest of England. And he told me that he really liked some of Johnson's policies. But the lies, as David Summers put it, changed his mind. He did really well on COVID, bringing in vaccines. We were ahead of the world on that one. He's back Ukraine to the hilt. But the mistakes are it's just one or two lies he told he should have been honest about. And now they've come out of the cupboard and on the backside. All right, so I assume there's a lot of speculation already. Who will run to replace Johnson, and what could that contest look like? Yeah, everybody's watching this really closely. I was talking to Nicholas Allen today. He teaches politics at Royal Holloway, University of London, and this is what he thinks is going to happen. There are a lot of very ambitious politicians who now fancy their chances at becoming prime minister. So it's probably more likely than not that there will be a very messy and distracting leadership contest that will last a couple of months. And we'll be watching a number of people, the current defense minister who was out in front of arming Ukraine, the foreign secretary. Then there's uh, Sajid Javid, former health secretary, Rishi Sunak, former UK secretary, and Adim Zahawi, who's now the current secretary uh, of the Treasury, basically. And one thing is Javid and Sunak, they're children of immigrants from South Asia. Zahawi is born in Iraq. They would, any of those, would bring a very different perspective to Number 10 Downing Street. NPR's Frank Langfitt in London. Thank you. Great to talk, Juana. Between mass shootings and much more common day-to-day -day gun violence, there were more than 45,000 firearm-related deaths in the U.S. in 2020. Or, to put it another way, about 124 each day. That comes from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Grady Memorial Hospital in downtown Atlanta regularly treats the people who make up that data. The hospital has a certified level one trauma center, meaning it's equipped to deal with the most serious injuries, including many gunshot injuries. Dr. Elizabeth Benjamin is the trauma medical director for Grady, and she joins us now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. So I, I know that Grady is one of the busiest trauma centers in the country. Can you just tell us, what does that look like on a daily basis for you? Yeah, we uh, we see a lot of trauma at Grady. We are definitely one of the busier trauma centers in the nation. We have about a quarter of our patients that come in from penetrating trauma. So that means gunshot wounds, stab wounds, these kinds of violent crimes. And at Grady, we have a really high proportion of those are from gunshot wounds. And the number of gunshot wound victims has increased significantly over the last decade, and it has really become a nightly occurrence that we have often multiple gunshot victims on a nightly basis here at the trauma center. What is the cause of most of the firearm-related injuries that you see? Like, is it intentional violence? Is it accidents? What's the biggest proportion? 
It's typically intentional. Um, we do have a surprising number of unintentional or things that get coded as unintentional, but the vast, vast majority is violent crime intentional. Yeah. You know, I was thinking the other day when we talk about the cost of gun violence, we tend to focus on deaths, right? Like after a mass shooting, there's almost a sigh of relief for the people who are, quote unquote, only injured by the gunfire. But let's be very clear here. Gun injuries are often life changing. Can you talk about that piece of it? Like what's the range of what you see among the people who survive? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, and there's a huge range. I mean, I agree with you. So many people talk about, oh, somebody was lucky. They only had this injury. I mean, it's they were still shot. I mean, there's nothing lucky about that. The way that the body reacts and the way that the mind reacts is obviously different. But, you know, there's two real components to it. There's a psychological component. So some people might not suffer physical, you know, long term physical harm, but they'll still suffer quite a bit of psychological harm from the incident. And and then from a bodily harm, you know, for injuries sustained, it's a huge effect. I mean, we have you know, patients that come in that are paralyzed, you know, paraplegic, quadriplegic, their entire life changes in an instant, you know, they'll lose a limb, they'll have massive changes, you know, to their liver function, their uh, internal organs will do operations, and they'll be dealing with the repercussions of those injuries for possibly the rest of their life. And you know, and it doesn't just change their life, it changes the life of their family and their friends, their livelihood. It's the impact is really difficult to quantify, almost impossible. Yeah. Well, from your point of view, as someone who is inside the healthcare system, how would you describe the way guns are affecting this country's public health as a whole? Oh, I mean, it's a public health crisis. There's just too many guns. I mean, there's too many people that are getting shot and injured and it is a true public health crisis. I mean, the numbers of people that we're seeing directly and indirectly secondarily affected by gun violence is, I mean, it's one of the biggest public health problems that we're facing right now. I have to ask, do you ever see a time when gun violence will not be such a massive problem in the U.S.? What do you think? <laughs> well, I have to say yes. I mean, that's why we do this, right? I don't do this job to keep treating victims of gun violence. You know, a huge part of our job that we do is support violence prevention. A lot of hospitals are, are really working to improve this and, and broaden the reach. We have a lot of programs within the city of Atlanta, a lot of programs that are funded by Grady and the, and the city and overall, and a lot of people working towards that. So I have to believe that there's a chance to, to really decrease this burden um, and this, this healthcare crisis. That is Dr. Elizabeth Benjamin. She's Grady Memorial Hospital's trauma medical director in Atlanta. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's small, it's green, it's a crustacean, and now it's in whiskey. People are going to hear crab whiskey, and I venture to say three quarters of them are going to go, blah, no, absolutely not. But then when you actually, if you can get them to taste it, uh, they totally changed their tune for the most part. Will Robinson is a product developer at Tamworth Distilling. He decided one way to tackle the invasive species, green crabs, was to try to bottle them. First, he distills a crab stock in a vacuum still. It looks like a crazy piece of laboratory equipment. It's taller. I'm six foot four and it's taller than I am. 
the pot, so to speak, that the liquid goes in is a bulbous shaped um, glass piece that holds about 20 liters, of, has a volume of about 20 liters of liquid. Then he adds spices like paprika, dill, and cinnamon, and everything is mixed with a bourbon base. It takes about a pound of crabs to make each bottle of whiskey, but it's going to take a lot more to get the green crab population under control. Because there's so many of them. There's so many of them. They are probably one of the most uh, successful invasive species that we have in North America, at least in the marine world. Dr. Gabriella Brott, she's a fisheries specialist at the University of New Hampshire. They can eat about 40, 40 mussels a day, just one crab. And so you multiply that by a bazillion and you have no more clams, right? So even though crab whiskey alone can't fix the problem, Brott says she hopes it helps by raising awareness. And speaking of raising awareness, Juana, I understand that you get to have a taste of some of this green crab whiskey right there in the studio in D.C.? That is right. We're going to try it out. I'm going to smell it first. Okay, so there's a lot of spices going on here. I definitely smell the paprika they talked about. So does it actually taste like crab in any way? <laughs> no, I, I do not taste any crab. But there is a nice little heat, maybe like a, a cousin twice removed from fireball. <laughs> We'll mail you some. <laughs> You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It was an up day across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow gained about one and a tenth percent, 347 points to close at 31,385. S&P rose for a fourth day to match this year's longest winning streak. The index picked up one and a half percent to close at 3,903. The Nasdaq pulled in more than two and a quarter percent to finish the day at 11,621. A growing number of people in the state are seeking unemployment benefits. U.S. labor officials reported today that nearly 7,900 people in the state applied for unemployment last week. That's up four percent from the week before. The rise mirrors a national trend as economic growth slows and consumers pull back on spending. Marketplace has details coming up at 6.30. It's now 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Join Rebecca Shear, host of WBUR's children's podcast, Circle Round, this Saturday at City Space to celebrate the launch of Circle Round's picture books. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. A lovely evening, an overcast night tonight, temperatures about 65. Tomorrow, partly sunny skies, inching up to about 83. 77 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. All Things Considered from NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Last week in the Philippines, the government again ordered the shutdown of the online news outlet Rappler. This order came just days before former President Rodrigo Duterte left office. His government argued that Rappler had violated foreign ownership rules. Duterte had long sought to shut down Rappler. The publication was critical of the former president's violent war on drugs. Rappler's founder, Nobel Prize-winning journalist Maria Ressa, plans to battle that shutdown order in court. Maria Ressa joins us now from Manila. Welcome to All Things Considered. 
Thanks for having me, Juana. Just to start, right now, is Rappler currently up and running? Absolutely. It's, you know, our only defense as a journalist is to actually shine the light. So when you get like what is equivalent of a shutdown order, do you stay quiet about it and wait? Or do you tell people about it? You tell your community about it. We chose to tell our community and we are working business as usual. We covered the inauguration of President Marcos and uh, we continue to do our jobs. This shutdown order came just as Rodrigo Duterte was set to leave office. So as you understand it, what are the implications of this order for y'all to shut down? Um, It ostensibly is the end of a long court process that began um, in 2016. We received the SEC, which is a minor regulatory agency here, to revoke our license to operate in January of 2018. Um, This is the tail end of that, and we should have the ability to challenge it at the Court of Appeals, to appeal this, right? But you have to keep in mind two things. The SEC's kill order, when they tried to revoke our license to operate, is the first of its kind in history of the Philippines. It is the first time that this regulatory agency is trying to shut down a news group, meaning to go right up against freedom of the press, which is in the Bill of Rights. Our constitution is patterned after the United States. You've said that this kill order is the first of its kind in the history of the country. Why do you believe that the government in the Philippines, that Duterte has targeted you, has targeted Rappler? We weren't the only ones. I mean, the first target of President Duterte was the largest newspaper. This was in his first State of the Nation address because the newspaper published a photo that showed the impunity in the war on drugs. The second target was the largest broadcaster, ABS-CBN, a news group I used to lead. Um, That has resulted in the end, you know, the franchise of ABS-CBN was essentially taken away uh, in 2020. And we were the third target in his third State of the Nation. I think we've survived because we have pushed back aggressively. We haven't stayed quiet. We have done our jobs and continue to do our jobs, uh, pretending, you know, there is a Damocles sword hanging over our heads. But what we do is we use that as motivation to do our jobs better. We'd like to learn a little bit more about Rappler and about the work that you do. About how big is the staff? You're talking about 100, uh, 120 people total. So it's, uh, we're, I would call us a medium-sized news group in terms of reach. Um, Rappler is fourth in reach online behind just the top television station and the, and the top newspaper. And I want to ask you about the people who power that coverage. How is your staff doing in the midst of all of this? You know, it's like we're living life like it's breaking news. Where we've been very, we've been forced to be very agile because think about it like this, right? We now have a a, a kill order, right? We've been told we have a, a shutdown order. So even as we're operating and we're the team is in high spirits because we prepared for this moment, we know that we could we have two paths: we could get shut down tomorrow, or we could hire more people tomorrow. It's a little bit surreal. But this is the kind of world we live in. You cannot voluntarily give up your rights. Maria, who do you think is hurt most in a world in which Rappler could well be forced to shut down, to stop publishing at some point? 
you know, we're seeing really a global downturn in terms of uh, democratic freedoms and rights and who would be hurt the most. I, I mean, what we've seen, and, I, and you've heard me blame technology as really the, the spark that lit really dry kindling. Um, technology, social media took lies and spread it faster and further than facts. Um, when you don't know what the facts are, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. If you don't have these three, you don't have a shared reality. You can't solve any problems. And we have seen in the last six years of the Duterte administration, really uh, death by a thousand cuts of our democracy and our institutions. Here's the part that is, I feel is dangerous, not just for the Philippines, but for the world. If we don't have facts, if you don't have integrity of facts, how will you have integrity of elections? The U.S., this year in November, will have its midterm elections. If you are insidiously manipulated on social media, how do you know whether you will have integrity of the vote? When these types of illiberal leaders are democratically elected, they then cave the institutions of democracy from within. We are seeing this in many countries around the world, including the United States. Yeah. What would you say to fellow journalists in places like Hungary, Russia, Turkey, Uganda, and elsewhere, where news outlets are facing oppressive tactics and threats of violence simply for doing their jobs, for covering the news? I was actually with many of them just a few weeks ago in, uh, in Bonn. And, you know, Russia, for example, the Russian journalists who were just pushed into exile, you know, what they said is that you know, this is what it looks like when you lose. Um, they compared themselves to like the frog in boiling water. They didn't realize that, that it would crumble so fast. The Ukrainian journalists actually gave us the most hope because it was very clear when you're at war, news is survival. And, you know, she talked about how the journalists all worked together. They went into this, they went into the same bomb shelters. People needed to know where they could get gasoline, where they could get water, right? That's a different one. But then the rest of us in Hungary, Brazil, um, Turkey, in the Philippines, in India, we're all in the same boat, having to hold the line. We continue to do our jobs. And yet, the very same platforms that distribute the news have become the weapon of authoritarian leaders that are not just pushing back, pushing back against journalists, trying to hold them to account, but are literally, I mean, we are closer to fascism. And I don't use that word lightly. Maria Ressa, founder and CEO of Rappler, speaking to us from Manila. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And good luck to all of us. NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight at Fenway Park, Red Sox try to shake off their latest losses as they face the Yankees for their first game in the four-game Boston stint. It's 6.30. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Gloucester Stage, presenting Between the Sheets, a new play about Edith Wharton's love affair. Between the Sheets, July 1st to 24th, tickets at gloucesterstage.com. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. When it comes to cancer, it matters where you start and when you start. Don't wait. Visit youhaveus.org.